This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, for our 194th episode, we discuss the cult Christmas classic, The Nightmare Before Christmas from 1993, celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. Directed by Henry Selleck, writing by Caroline Thompson Jr., music by Danny Elfman, starring Chris Sarandon as the voice, or at least the speaking voice, of Jack Skellington, Catherine O'Hara as Sally and the character of Shock, William Hickey as Dr. Finkelstein, Glenn Shaddix as the mayor, Ken Page as Oogie Boogie, Ed Ivory as Santa Claus, Joe Ranf as Igor, and Paul Rubens as Locke. Also, Danny Elfman did the singing voice for Jack Skellington. Recognition for this movie? The Nightmare Before Christmas was wide released on October 29, 1993. On a rough budget of $24 million, the film would go on to gross over $88 million at the global box office for number 21 on the year. It was met with near-universal critical praise and was nominated for Best Visual Effects by the Academy Awards. The soundtrack for the film was nominated for the 1993 Golden Globe for Best Original Score, and the accompanying album peaked at number 64 on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart. Most recently, the film ranked number one on Rotten Tomatoes' Top 25 Best Christmas Movies list. While a sequel or prequel has often been talked about, Tim Burton has adamantly denied that he would ever let anything of the sort go forward. The Nightmare Before Christmas currently holds a 95% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, an 82 score on Metacritic, and a 3.9 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So, given that neither of us has a relationship to this movie before this week, neither of us had seen the film, and to a degree I I can understand why, this type of movie was not necessarily made for us, per se. We are not, like, super Halloween people. We don't, I guess, like the gothic arts, particularly. What is your relationship, Dad, to at least Tim Burton? Two films that I thought were not my cup of tea. One was Edward Scissor's Hands, and the other was Beetlejuice. I never understood what the fascination with Beetlejuice was or why people liked it. And uh, Edward Scissor's Hands made no sense to me. I still don't quite understand or get the point of it. And so I kind of soured on Tim Burton based on those two specifically. I haven't seen Ed Wood, uh, which you have and you've talked about on this program that is before. one I do love. I think my entire relationship to Tim Burton is through others' appreciation or, in your case, lack of appreciation for his work. I think the only two Tim Burton movies or straight Tim Burton movies that I've seen were Batman and Batman Returns. And it's been a long time since I've seen either of those because I'm so soured on the 90s Batman. I know we have 1989's original Batman on the schedule for next season, but my relationship is very narrow. He makes films that aren't necessarily tailored for my tastes. 
I'm not somebody who appreciates the gothic aesthetic. I don't really appreciate anything having to do with ghouls, goblins, the dead, anything kind of the Halloween season. I just don't get into. It's never been something that I cared for or appreciated. And a lot of his movies have some of that intrigue tied into them. You mentioned Beetlejuice. I would say Corpse Bride or this have some of those aesthetics. Even the original two Batman movies, they were somewhat gothic in their depiction, which is a little bit different than I really grew up on with Batman. And I think I I appreciate more the gritty take than the gothic take that Burton did. He's too dark for me. Now, did he direct a movie adaptation of Dark Shadows with Johnny Depp? I believe so, yes. Yeah, that's He also did the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Alice in Wonderland, which had a, I don't know, dark demonic to them. element to them. I don't know if I would I would classify it as demonic, but it definitely was darker than the original versions. Yes. I, I'm not a big fan of that bend. I, I'm just not somebody who really gets into the macabre, the dark. It just doesn't appeal to me. I'm not saying it's bad or that uh, other people can't enjoy it. I mean, if if tomorrow they were to pass a law that says there will be no more Halloween, I wouldn't bat an eye. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't miss it. It's it's never been a, a holiday that particularly appealed to me. So with half of our audience now turning off the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Was it as bad as you originally thought it was going to be since this was both of our first watches? No, it was not as bad as I thought. But I also don't didn't enjoy it nearly as much as others would or did. But then again, you know, I'm kind of a traditionalist. I don't like fusion cooking for the most part. I think it's kind of pointless. And why would you fuse two diametrically opposed holidays? into a, uh, a animated film. I don't see the point, but okay. I get what he was trying to do. This is made for a certain audience. That's why I, I've described it repeatedly as a cult Christmas classic, because I think that it's somewhat non-traditional for those of us that are a little bit more upbeat or like stuff that's a little bit more straight-laced that doesn't have this kind of aesthetic to it. And it's made for those that really celebrate and go out of their way to dress in black during the month of October and get into decorating their yard or really like to be scared and really like horror movies. That's just never going to be us. No. But I will say, I didn't hate the movie. I was a little bored in sections of it, but I could see why people like it. It aesthetically, I mean, the animation was good. There was elements to it. We'll get into more what I thought was the best part of the film. Um, but, I, you know, it was a little bit more boring than I would have thought it would be for a film that was just over, what was it, an hour and 15 minutes? Yeah, I think about an hour and 15, hour and 20, somewhere in that vicinity. I wouldn't say that like I was thoroughly entertained, but again, I can appreciate how people can appeal to the aesthetic. It's a fantastic looking movie for being stop animation. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they really did an exceptional job in putting that together. And while the songs don't necessarily appeal to me, I can understand why there are certain people that do enjoy them and have enjoyed the soundtrack for years. They're catchy. So then it begs the question, what do you think the movie is actually about? The only thing I could think of, and I thought long and hard about this, is is that it's supposed to be drawing the dichotomy, the contrast between the positive holiday and the dark, macabre holiday. But other than that, I really couldn't figure anything out other than Burton just thought this would be kind of cool to do. I thought this movie was a lot about identity, but as opposed to a lot of films that explore themes of redefining yourself or you can recreate your identity or you're not tied to it, this has kind of an alternative point of view on that that aspect. I thought it was very Platonian, and what I mean by that is that the Republic is often set up in the way it was described and written, at least from my memory of taking philosophy like 15 years ago, was everybody was meant for a particular role in society. You were either a guardian or a soldier. You were a wise man, so you'd be potentially in government. Or you were a citizen that could carry out certain roles that were for the betterment of the community. And for Skellington, he tries to go against his true nature only to be kind of rebuffed that he can't be Santa Claus, but he could be a very good pumpkin king. And there's no disgrace in being exactly who you were meant to be. I think that is the part that probably appeals to people of a certain identity that like a lot of the gothic aesthetic. Good points. I I mean, I I don't have a whole lot more to add other than the fact that I think that burnout is part of the story and uh, losing interest in what you've been doing for a long period of time because it gets to be mundane and formulaic. So you might be able to appeal to the heart of Jack Skellington and the fact that you've been doing Social Security briefs for 30 years and staring at a computer screen all day, every day for years on years on years, reading the exact same facts and figures and medical records and reading the same judge's opinions over and over and over again? Yes. Is that where you were going with that? Yes. Mm, Okay. Well, would you like to give us some more background on the movie? Do you have our plot summary ready for us? I do. In Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas... The fantastical meets the macabre in a hauntingly beautiful tale that blurs the lines between two iconic holidays. In the gloomy yet enchanting Halloween town, Jack Skellington, the Pumpkin King, grows weary of the same old spooky routine. Longing for something more, he stumbles upon Christmas Town and becomes captivated by the joyous spirit of the Yuletide season. Jack's unbridled enthusiasm for Christmas leads him to a fateful decision. He decides to take over the holiday festivities in his ghoulish way. With the help of Halloween Town's eccentric residents, including the lovable ragdoll Sally, Jack transforms the traditionally jolly holiday into a dark and twisted spectacle. 
Yet, as he orchestrates his sinister vision of Christmas, Jack inadvertently puts Santa Claus in peril and risks ruining the holiday for children around the world. A visually stunning stop-motion masterpiece, The Nightmare Before Christmas unfolds with an eerie grace, combining Burton's signature gothic aesthetic with Henry Selleck's masterful animation. Danny Elfman's haunting musical score adds a whimsical and melancholic dimension to the film, complementing the peculiar yet endearing characters that populate this otherworldly realm as Jack's well-intentioned escapade spirals into chaos. The film explores the themes of identity, self-discovery, and the importance of embracing one's true nature. Thank you. Did you know? Tim Burton has said the original poem from which the movie spawned was inspired after seeing Halloween merchandise display in the store being taken down and replaced by a Christmas display. The juxtaposition of ghouls and goblins with Santa and his reindeer sparked his imagination. Did you know? While Danny Elfman was chosen to voice Jack Skellington, it was felt that his singing was great, but his speaking voice was too wooden and stiff. Chris Sarandon was then cast as Jack's speaking voice because he closely matched Elfman's singing voice. Did you know? It took a group of around 100 people three years to complete this movie. For one second of the film, up to 12 stop-motion moves had to be made. Did you know? According to Henry Selleck, Vincent Price was originally cast as Santa Claus. However, after the death of Price's wife, his own health began to fail and his voice performance was very frail and weak. The tracks were deemed unusable, which led, much to Selleck's regret, to the role being recast. The film premiered at a film festival on October 9th, only 16 days before Price's death, and was released on a limited basis four days later. The film's first United States-wide release was October 29th, four days after Price passed away. Did you know? In a test shot of the end where the vampires play hockey on the frozen lake, they originally used a head that resembled the head of the film's creator and producer, Tim Burton. However, one of the producers told director Henry Selleck that Burton probably wouldn't like that, so it was changed at the last moment and reshot with a jack-o'-lantern instead of a head. Selleck later said that he believed that Burton would have liked the idea and regretted not asking the man himself. And with that, we'll take our first break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week for our 195th episode and final episode of Season 4, we're heading back up the Nung River into the Heart of Darkness by revisiting Apocalypse Now from 1979, directed and written by Francis Ford Coppola with John Milius. Music by Carmine and Francis Ford Coppola, starring Martin Sheen, Robert Duvall, Marlon Brando, and Dennis Hopper. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Dad, best performance is up. Who do you have down? I thought the best part of the entire film was the music. So I went with Danny Elfman. <laughs> yeah, okay. So did I. Yeah. Other than the animation, which we'll get to with my other two nominations, I think that was the most important part for me, as well as he creates the singing voice for Skellington, who is the prominent character, and most of his line delivery is through song. So I think in combination, 
Elfman probably contributed the most to what made this movie successful outside of the animation. I think you could make a fairly reasonable argument that the animation is the biggest portion of the movie. But I think for all the kids that grew up on this, they're not trying to be stop motion animators. They're trying to sing the songs. Sure. I mean, it's what makes the uh, thing translatable and makes it catchy for the kids because they'll remember the songs and by the songs, they remember the lines. And I mean, we've seen that before with kids movies that you throw a few musical numbers in there and all of a sudden it takes off as a completely different entity, whether that be a couple of years ago with Encanto or Frozen, which is the bane of my sister's existence as a (laughs) (laughs) elementary and middle school teacher. But uh, we've been having this stuff, you know, going back to Beauty and the Beast or The Little Mermaid for as long as I can remember. Sure. Best secondary performance. I had the director, Henry Selleck. Again, part of his big occupation in this was he handled the direction of all the animation and all the camera work that went into it. And so I, I felt that for the momentous task of what it was required to pull something like this off and three years worth of work, he definitely deserved to at least be recognized by me. I went with Chris Sarandon because I really thought he did a nice job in the the speaking parts. He was able to convey the emotions of what was going on very well. It's a little difficult sometimes to have your voice convey or exemplify the emotions of what you're supposed to be doing. It's it's you don't hit the facial expressions and the body language you would have in a real film or a live film, if that makes any sense. But a, a, uh, uh, with real actors as opposed to animation. And I thought he did as good a job as any I've seen in uh, giving that voice and making it uh, lifelike. Most charismatic for you? I have William Bill Hickey. This is, you know, this is not his only Christmas movie. You know what other movie he did? No idea. They want you to say Grace. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Oh, I thought you were going Scrooged. Not Scrooged. He was the old guy. He was the, the uncle or the... That came with his wife and the... I see. I've never seen Christmas Vacation, so... You really... You haven't? Oh. Nope. Never really felt the onus to watch it. I've never seen European Vacation either. I think I've seen certain scenes from Vegas Vacation, particularly having to do with Randy Quaid. Anyway, he was a longtime character actor. (laughs) He always played a part because of the way he looked of being 20 years older than he was Um, when he did uh, Christmas vacation, you know, he's playing this old guy with a toupee and he was only in his early or late sixties, early seventies. And he's supposed to be playing this guy who's like 90. He got his first real break in Pritzi's honor after being on uh, the stage. Most of his career. I don't know. There's something very haunting about his voice and him voicing Voicing Dr. Finkelstein um, was a stroke of genius, I think, in casting. I have the animators for my most charismatic. Okay. 
I think the aesthetic of how the film looks. So because the animators would have a lot of characterization through the motions of all of the characters, as well as kind of the set design has the most contribution for me. I thought the one thing that really appealed to me is that I thought this looked really good for a stop motion animation film. When you go back and watch some of the Christmas classics like Little Drummer Boy and Rudolph and some of those, they look really dated. This didn't feel that dated to me. And so I felt that just, again, for their overall body of work, putting in such hours to do such meticulous work for every single frame, yeah, I think they can deserve a charismatic award here. Best scene, I have roughly eight down. I have the opening, which is them christening another glorious Halloween. Then I have Christmas Town, so Jack stumbling on Christmas Town for the first time. Then I have Jack returning. I have the special mission where he gives the three little trick-or-treaters their mission to kidnap Santa Claus, and then their subsequent song out of that. I have the help from the citizens of Halloween Town as they try and help Jack prepare for Christmas and to make it a horrible slash jolly one. Then I have Oogie Boogie. I have Jack delivering the presents and I have Jack saving Santa. Anything that you want to highlight that I missed? I thought about it. No, really. There was a couple that maybe, but uh, they kind of spill over from one to the other. So I really didn't think it was necessarily correct to differentiate them as a separate scene. Fair enough. As my best scene, I have the Christmas town scene. I think that's the crux of the movie for me. If it's not that where he stumbles upon it for the first time and really has a go at describing Christmas town and his joy and that song, I would say it's probably towards the end of the movie for me, but I'll get to that here in a second. I just liked the feeling of discovery. I enjoyed that particular song probably more than the others. And it felt somewhat familiar to me because looking at Christmas Town, it felt a little like Whoville. So it, it felt very Grinch-like, which, of course, for me, is a, let's say, closely held favorite. I had help from the uh, citizens of Halloween Town because when you watch that, it becomes clearly obvious that this effort is going to jump the rails. It's just not going to go the way he wanted or hoped it would. And it's just clearly obvious that they're not going to uh, do anything that will preserve or enhance the Christmas holiday. Yeah, certainly that and him delivering the presents to the kids and them opening up the presents was about the two times that you really giggled during this. Well, that's why my favorite scene is then also is that Jack delivers the presents because the severed heads and uh, all <laughs> the rest of that just kind of, yeah. Scaring the kids and the parents. I, I agree with you. I, that was my favorite scene uh, of the whole thing. But that leads into my most indelible, Jack getting shot down. The uh, military participation in a Christmas movie is not one I would have seen coming. <laughs> Uh, yeah, okay. I went with Jack Save Santa. Everything down from uh, Santa kind of being a little pissed off. Santa has a little nasty to him. I mean, he's trying to do his job. 
I, I can understand. Sure. So that looks like a good spot for our second break. We'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our Master Greatest Movies of All Time list that has every graded movie we've ever done on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to ronnieduncanstudios.com backslash podcast and find us the top entry on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast show page. That is the grades we've done so far for all 180 movies we've graded, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Shirley Ann Field, 87, English actress. Was in The Entertainer, The Damned, and Elfie. Stan Rogow, 75, American television producer. Did Lizzie McGuire, Flight 29 Down, and Fame. I believe he did the TV show version of Fame, if if I'm correct. correct. Yes. Ryan O'Neill, 82, American actor, was in Love Story, Barry Lyndon, and Paper Moon. He was also, I did not realize, a boxer before he was an actor. I was reading in the obituary that I attached in the online version of the show. So, again, if you want the personal notes for every episode, we have a link to the website that has every individual episode with all of the different notes. So it has all the in memoriam and the best lines, et cetera, et cetera. And I have clickable links for all of our in memoriam entrants over the last, I want to say at least six months, if not full year. But in reading his obituary, kind of preparing for this, I did not realize he was the second highest grossing star of the 1970s behind only Clint Eastwood. He was big at one time. And he's done two movies, or he starred in two movies that we have done on the show. I'm not sure I remember either one. Well, first of all, we did Paper Moon, didn't we? No. Oh, we just watched it? We just watched it a few months ago. Okay, we probably should have recorded it, but he was in um, A Bridge Too Far. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I was reading that earlier today, and I forgot that uh, he was in that. And we also lost Andre Brower, 61, American actor, Homicide, Life on the Street, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Glory, and Men of a Certain Age. He was the 1998 Emmy winner for Best Actor for Homicide, Life on the Street. Primarily a TV actor, we did cover him briefly when we did Glory a couple of years back. This is somewhat of a personal loss, given my affinity for particularly his character. I think his character was the best one on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Great actor, very personable. I think the outpouring online yesterday after his passing pretty much says it all. So another tough loss for us this year in a year where we've lost so many great actors or industry people really too soon. And so we remember them all here with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. Best funniest lines. I have one. (laughs) I have a few. Okay. I have the same one that I gave last week. The mayor. Jack, please. I'm only an elected official here. I can't make decisions by myself. 
school. I am the who when you call who's there. And then lastly, Skellington, why does nothing ever turn out like it should? Fair enough. You ready to go to the Stanley rubric? I am. Legacy is up first. Do you want to go first or second? Go ahead. So given that this is a still popular enough Christmas movie that Disney has discussed on, at least by my count, three different occasions, either making a sequel or a prequel or trying to capitalize on something around this yet, still means it is a valuable property to them. I think that the overwhelming critical sentiment towards it leads me a little bit higher. I'm not going to go the full five. I'm not even sure I I can go to a 4.5. I think I'm going to go four on the industry. On the public side of this thing, I'm going to match that four. I don't think this is a film for everyone, but for those that this is for, that this was made for, this is their Christmas movie. This is something they grew up with. They hold it very closely. They love this thing beyond you know what you or I could probably comprehend. So I think an eight is deserved. Okay, for the industry, I went with 3.5. It was critically acclaimed and, you know, and such, but it wasn't like an instant classic. And as time has gone by, it's become more popular, I think, even among critics. But I don't think it's ever going to take the uh, Mount Rushmore of Christmas films. So I, I just can't go as high as you on that for the industry. For the public, actually, it is extremely popular for a select group. And I was surprised when I mentioned it, how many people were familiar with it, but have never seen it. Because I, I generally, people I come in contact with or talk to, I'll mention what we're doing that week just to gauge their reaction to the film. And so I had to go with the 3.5 there. My numbers will be, for impact and significance, going to be higher than this, but I go with a 7 overall for Legacy. So that's a 7.5 average between the two of us? Impact and significance. The industry, I'm going to go with a 4, because I think the impact and the significance, I mean, it was well-received. It received a, uh, an Academy Award nomination when animated had not been doing that. And I think the public, the fact that for a small Christmas animated movie, which is a fusion between two holidays, I think it did surprisingly well. So I'm going to go with the public as a four also for an eight overall. Given that this was a number 21 out of, I think, like a hundred and some films that year, at least 109 that I can tell. It's ahead of some bigger films for us. Like, it's just ahead of the total box office for both Groundhog Day and Grumpy Old Men, which I think both of us like a lot better. It's ahead of Tombstone. It's ahead of, you know, Rookie of the Year, which I like despite it being about a Cubs player. So there are some decent movies on this list that it's ahead of but it's not on the same tier as those that are just ahead of it. So it grossed 88 million worldwide and it didn't quite hit the hundred mark, which is just ahead of it. I think the next highest movie 
was made in America with 104. Jurassic Park by far was the biggest movie of the year. Do you have any idea what finished number two that year? It's a Robin Williams movie, if that helps. Mrs. Doubtfire? Yeah. That made almost a half billion dollars. Yeah. And then The Fugitive, Schindler's List, and The Firm were your top five for the year. I mean, what a weird year in film. (laughs) So to not hit the $100 million mark with a Disney animated property after they'd done so many others, I think it was a little bit limited by when it was released, who it was targeted for, and when it was released. Because it was not released for Christmas. It was released roughly around the time of Halloween in preparation for Christmas, which I guess maximizes your audience in that capacity. But again, this wasn't made for everybody. So with that all in mind, I would say the audience on this one is actually a little bit lower than I would go in the legacy where people have picked it up over time. I'm going to go 3.5 on the industry side though. I'll stick with my four. I I don't think that the industry is all that much less on this movie than they were at the time. So I have a 7.5. Okay. Well, I will say part of the problem was is that Disney didn't want this as part of its natural property. They pushed it over to Touchstone, which was their more adult-oriented films or their more mature films. So I think that had an impact on it as well. And I think that's Touchstone, not Touchtone. Okay. Novelty on this, it's the only thing in its genre. There are no crossover Halloween Christmas movies outside of this. And there are very few Halloween-themed movies for kids that are specifically aimed at kids. Charlie Brown and the Great Pumpkin is like one of the rare examples I know that there were a couple of Disney films from when I was a kid, like, what was it? Hocus Pocus was a big one that kind of like came, had a resurgence recently. But the only thing I'm going to take off for is that this gave me some very grinchy vibes from the way it looked and somewhat of the story structure. So I'm going to go for a nine. I think this is, is somewhat of a unicorn. It was completely Grinchy vibes for me. I I thought this was, to some extent, a rewriting of the Grinch, told with a different uh, root base. But I think it was a lot of the same. And come to coming to the realization that Christmas is something positive, not negative. Blah blah blah. Um, so I couldn't give it a, a real high novelty score. So I went to seven point five because I think it's very much in in line with the Grinch. See, I would argue against that because there is a point where it differentiates itself and its overall conclusion is different in my mind, where the Grinch learns that he can change and he can grow. Skellington is receding into the fact that he is who he is and he's not going to change that fact. And I think that's where I would put the clear delineation between the two. I got from the set decoration, the art design, the animation, certain Grinchy vibes, and some of the early portions of the movie when he decides he's going to take over Santa's role. Yes, those are very Grinch-like, but I do think that the second half of the movie 
ends up being very different for me, which is why I don't give it too much off. Okay, I'll go up to an eight based on your arguments. So we have an 8.5 average between the two of us for novelty. We had a 7.75 average on impact and significance. Classicness, go ahead. I didn't see a lot of problems with it. You know, our normal is to start at seven and then go up or down. I didn't see a lot to go up or down with. So I did go up a little bit to a 7.5 because, I mean, it did have some, uh, at least some diversity of casting by the ghouls and uh, male versus female characters, etc. So I went up slightly to 7.5. I do think this ages fairly well. There isn't anybody that is a part of this or was part of the creation of it that has since been brought down for any particular reason. I don't even know if I feel like diversity is necessarily a big thing in an animated kids movie per se, but Sally is a fairly strong to do character in and amongst the rest of it and becomes somewhat of the cathartic portion of the movie. I would say the one drawback I have, and it was noted online that there have been occasional complaints that Oogie Boogie is a little too close to being minstrel like and possibly a little bit racist in his depiction. But even that I think is somewhat unwarranted. So I'm going to go for an eight. Okay. So do you need help with the math? Sure. 7.75. Did that in my head. Wow. With my eyes closed. All by yourself? Yes. Okay. Rewatchability. The likelihood of me putting this on is going to be because of someone else. I don't think I personally, because it was not something for me, feel I need to go out of my way to see this again. I've seen it once. That's probably good enough for me. I'm somewhere between probably a 1.5 and a 2, but I think I'll be a little bit more favorable and say a 2 on that side of it. As for leaving it on, it's a short enough movie. It's pleasant. It's not something terrible to look at. It's entertaining. So I have no real objection over going for a 3.5. So I'm going to go with a 5.5. Okay. For me, not going to care if I ever see it again. Okay. It's not going to make a big deal to me. I've seen it. I know what it is. I can talk about it. I can converse with somebody who enjoys it and at least find some common ground of things that I enjoyed or liked about the movie to have a nice conversation. If I watch it again, it'll either be because somebody else is watching it or wants to watch it. And I am not necessarily going to object to that. So for rewatchability, I went with a 4.5. So then we just have a straight five between the two of us. For audience score, we have a 90% for Google users and a 92% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us a 9.1. So to recap the categories, we had a 7.5 for Legacy, we had a 7.75 for Impact and Significance, an 8.5 for Novelty, a 7.75 for Classicness, a 5 for Rewatchability, and a 9.1 
for audience score, giving us a final total of 45.6. And currently placing it on our list between Pillow Talk and Bull Durham. (laughs) Okay. Remaining questions for this one. I don't understand why two characters like Jack and Oogie Boogie don't necessarily get along or why they have animosity. It's never really explained in the film. No, it isn't. And I don't guess I don't understand it either. I, the only thing I can say is, is that sometimes people just don't like each other or they feel like they're in competition for control of some aspect. Well, I mean, he just seems like a throw in character that's needed for a third act foil. <laughs> Yeah, he's kind of uh yeah, a one-trick pony. He doesn't have much else to do or say about the film or have much else other than the one scene uh that really has any impact. Any remaining questions for you? No, not really. All right. Final thoughts for the week. I don't know. I'm looking forward to the holiday. It'll be interesting to watch Apocalypse Now again, especially leading into the holiday. Yes, nothing um, says uh, Christmas like the horror. Or napalm in the morning. Does smell like Christmas. Although some pine scent I can understand. That's, That's one part of Christmas at the house that I don't understand. We got a fake tree so that we didn't have to deal with all the pine crap. Why do we need pine scent then to mask that we have a fake tree? <laughs> I don't know. Why do why do we have why do we have to have burn candles? Why do we have to have decorative towels? Why do we have to have these little soaps that no one ever uses? <sighs> I have one word, but I think we'll get canceled. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's one of these great mysteries that men never understand and don't question. There you go. That That's a better way of putting it. All I'll say for my remaining thought, Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh, we have one episode left for season four, and we've enjoyed being with you. I guess the one other additive that I would put on here that we didn't discuss last week, but we did two weeks ago, you still have time to get us any of your menus or dinner in a movie menu suggestions. For the Bells of St. Mary's, which was what Sarah, who's been on the show at least five times, suggested, or the movie she picked for our family tradition now, that movie takes place at a Catholic school in the inner city of New York. So I was able to find online a school recipe or school lunch recipe cookbook that provided certain items that were made in New York City schools in the 1940s and use that as the basis with which to recreate a menu item that would pair with that film. So please be creative. What did you pick? I think it had to be, it was like creamed vegetables. Then it was like a sweet potato pudding. Okay. I think it was like a candied apples. And essentially like meatloaf. Okay, I can see that. I was going to say, you know, otherwise we could always have the pizza where the grease is pooled on the top. That's so bad that. Oh, no, I have a different movie for pizza night. Ah, yeah. I I specifically got one so that we'd have one to give that as an excuse. Okay. 
And given that I wasn't sure whether Keith and Allison would be joining us for pizza night when we did it, I have two selections. One that Keith will tolerate and the other one that Keith will abhor. Okay. If you want to know, I'll tell you off air. All right. Otherwise, I think that'll do it for us this week. Merry Christmas again, everyone. Thank you for listening. The Horror. The Horror. Next week for our 195th episode and final episode of Season 4, we're heading back up the Nung River into the Heart of Darkness by revisiting Apocalypse Now from 1979. Directed and written by Francis Ford Coppola with John Milius. Music by Carmine and Francis Ford Coppola, starring Martin Sheen, Robert Duvall, Marlon Brando, and Dennis Hopper. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronniedunkinstudios.com or at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast. Find us on YouTube, Instagram, X, Letterboxd, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 